The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 90 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and that of my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment. And I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I remind our listeners, you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at the very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals of the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So, uh, man, that was a great show last week with Na Wen. She's the producer and creator, uh, creative director of Google's Power On Film Series. And she was awesome and was really a, a, a breath of fresh air to have her on the show and listen to how, you know, what she, the decisions that she's made in her career, how she's pivoted and the reasons why and the risks that she took, and also the challenges that she faced by being the only female uh, Asian-American in the room sometimes, um, and what that felt like and what she had to overcome uh, to be so successful in, in what she does today. She's just an amazing person. Um, and, and I just, just sitting and I listened to the show, at, you know, after, oh, of course, uh, you know, we taped the show and, and put it on the air. You know, I listened to the show a few times because, <laughs> you know, just you have to you have to listen to some. Sometimes you have to listen to the episodes a few times to really get everything that someone's saying, uh, and really understand uh, what they're talking about. And she's just, uh, you know, because she's she has a lot to say. So it was a lot to lot to take in in a full hour. Um, so she she took this uh, this cinematic short film series that she did with first time directors Julie Bowen, um, Bowen, Nikki Reed. Uh, Rosario Dawson and a whole bunch of others. You probably know these names. And it was to inspire girls in STEAM fields and in technology. So she uses technology as the narrative centerpiece in each one of the short films. And she did a whole bunch of stuff, and she also touched upon the important issues such as equality and gender and bullying and, and accessibility and loss. And it was just, it was just real, really human. All right, and I think everyone would get a lot out of it. You know, so if you if you haven't seen it, you know, check it out. That's the producer of Power On, Na Win, on last week's episode. That's episode number eighty nine of Task Force Seven Radio. So, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force Seven Radio episodes on playback. Just go to our new TF Seven Radio site at www.tf7radio.com. And hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage, and you can find all the TF7 radio episodes at your fingertips. So you can search our guest library, which we think is pretty impressive. 
I think we got some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world on our show. I was just talking about it again last week that, you know, some of the pro, uh, prospective um, guests that want to come on the show and, and they were just impressed with the guest list. People want to be associated with the people that have appeared on the show, which is fantastic. I feel very lucky and blessed. So then we got the news section as well, and you can check it out. You got the latest cybersecurity news on Task Force 7 Radio. You can even write some comments and, you know, comment on the different articles and topics. So that's always a lot of fun. So we're on at least 11 different playback mediums now. We made it easy to find them all. You just hit the subscribe button at the top of the right of the homepage, and you'll see the entire selection of playback mediums. And most importantly, you can subscribe to our show right from the TF7 radio website, which we think is the best way to stay connected to the TF7 family. You get to TF7 extras, you get notifications about them, you get notifications about the Encore episodes. Uh, we dropped another one last month, just a couple weeks ago. And I can't wait to see what's going to be going on in the future with this because we've got a lot of plans, folks. We've got a lot of plans. And we've been talking about how we're going to move this forward and what's, what's, what's version 2 look like, Task Force 7 Radio V2, right? Uh, it's just, uh, it's really exciting. So check us out, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. So I've got a great show for you this, uh, this evening. Uh, we're going to have Eric Murphy on with us tonight. And Eric is the, the Vice President of Security Research at SpyCloud. It's one of my favorite companies in the world. They sponsor the show, and I love what they do. They're always fighting the good fight. These are really good people doing a, a really good thing, and they've and they, they got a great business. And we've been working on getting Eric on the show for some time now, so I'm super stoked to get him in here. So if you don't know about SpyCloud, they help businesses of all sizes prevent data breaches and account takeover attacks by learning when employee or company assets have been compromised. So they're taking it right to the criminals. That's what they're doing. They're accomplishing this. They have an early warning breach detection service powered by a world-class team of intelligence analysts. And Eric currently leads the security research organization as the vice president of security research at SpyCloud. So Eric's a, a security intelligence guy. He's a, he's a pundit. He's a seasoned security leader. He's got a lot of experience. He's held several executive level roles, and he's really adept at building and developing security organizations. So He's had a 15-year career in the security industry. He's been the CISO of, of WordPress and Squarespace, and he's had various different roles from being an engineer to a researcher to chief technology officer and director at other companies. So at Squarespace, Eric cultivated, built, and scaled his security division, developing a holistic security architecture to detect and predict threats in real time. So... He's a, he's a seasoned security expert and leader. He's had the opportunity to create many different security teams, focusing on application security, threat intelligence, GRC, corporate security, and, of course, research. So we're going to tell you everything you need to know about account takeover fraud today. It's going to be a great show. You're going to love it. This is going to be a great episode, folks. It's time to welcome the Vice President of Security Research for SpyCloud, Eric Murphy, to the show. Eric, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Hello. Thank you for having me. Hey, man, I'm really excited to have you on, and I want to jump right into it. One of the things I want to kick off with is a question about intelligence, because I, you know, as I talk about all the time on the show, I think the intelligence-led strategies that corporations are putting in today are essential to the, you know, the basic foundation of a really solid uh, cybersecurity operation, and there's a lot of problems with intelligence that people are trying to overcome, and one of them is um, scale. 
Okay, so I wanted to ask you about scale, and what do you think the problem with intelligence collection at scale is today? Yeah, sure. So it's a good question. Uh, I would say it's a pretty complex answer. Uh, I think the first step is just defining what intelligence collection is. Uh, there's a lot of definitions out there. Um, but in this context, I guess if we put it to an example, um, if you look at intelligence agencies or, or people that are dealing in big data, uh, specifically security data, it's often done, uh, the collection is often done at the layers three and four, uh, the network layer. Um, you know, where a agency will go into a data center and install a very large passive tap, and then they try to sort through all that signal to noise, kind of like the proverbial needle in a haystack. So right there, you're dealing with petabytes, exabytes of data, um, which makes it very difficult then to store, analyze, and do something with. Um, so simply put, I guess the, the short answer, um, the amount of data when you're collecting at that specific layer um, is difficult to manage. You think companies are managing it properly now? Uh, properly, it's, it's really hard to say. Effectively, I think effectively, uh, I guess. Yeah, effectively would probably be a, a better way to put it. Um, I mean, in general, uh, especially tech-focused companies, if they're operating in this kind of reactive way, uh, looking at this, this layer and collecting said data, they're not doing it for long periods of time. You know, the ability to, say, store a year's worth of uh, packet captures, for example, um, is not the easiest thing to do. It's, it's heavy on the cost, especially if you're using uh, cloud services of some sort. So I'm a big fan of Spy Cloud, as I mentioned before in the opening, and, and I'd like to, to talk to you a little bit about the differentiator and what you guys are doing. So how is, how is Spy Cloud different from other models that are reactive in nature? Yeah, so excellent question. Um, we more or less promote the, the proactive nature. And if you, if you look at uh, CISOs of the world and you, you know, look at the, the history of how uh, we tend to do things, um, it's often very reactive. And what I mean by that is the standard operating procedure for a long time has been uh, get into an organization, establish a SOC, a security operations center, uh, and then fill it with a bunch of analysts, uh, look at that network traffic and a series of other things, uh, and then kind of wait for bad or, or look for bad in the context uh, that, that you see it. Um, the problem with that is it's very difficult to scale uh, versus the more proactive nature, uh, which is hiring and building purpose-driven intelligence teams to understand the criminal communities, to understand how criminals are targeting your business or your vertical. Um, so I think the fundamental difference is kind of that, that operating procedure where one group is actively integrating with criminal communities and, and looking for bad in a proactive sense versus the reactive nature where you're kind of stuck within your own perimeter uh, waiting for bad to happen. So let's benchmark a little bit. Let's talk about the account takeover and try to define that and how it's different than, say, like identity theft or the things that a lot of us experience and a lot of the terms that I guess the average person out there who's not in the cybersecurity business uh, understands and knows. Sure. So I think in general, most people have heard of identity theft. Right. Um, there are lots of different kinds of identity theft. Um, everything from you know, credit card theft to child identity theft to account takeover. Um, there's a lot of different facets uh, of it, but when we think of identity theft, that is uh, most, more often specific 
to your government issued ID. So for the US, that would be a social security number, a driver's license number, and more often than not, um, an actor that is dealing in that data um, is attempting to extract the data from you, whether that be uh, dollars from your bank account or new lines of credit or something like that. Uh, so fundamentally, identity theft the, is, is generally specific to your government issued ID and the takeover of such ID. Um, account takeover is a much more broad term uh, that has a focus on taking over your digital identities um, <clears throat> where the end goal is essentially doing something within the context of your digital identity. So uh, I guess to put it to a very basic example, uh, if, an, if an actor breaches your Domino's account, um, the end goal isn't necessarily to, um, you know, abstract uh, specific data points out of it, it's to understand what they can do uh, with that account. So in this case, it might be ordering pizza or um, trying to uh, harvest out your loyalty points or something like that. So um, I would say the difference primarily is, one is focused on uh, your, your government-issued ID uh, and everything that revolves around that versus account takeover affecting all your digital identities and the assets within. You know, that's a great explanation because I don't think the, the average person out there understands the difference between an account takeover and identity theft. And I don't think there's a lot of awareness out there about it. I mean, in your experience, is the general population aware of what can happen in an account takeover and, you know, the, and, and actually the, the frequency that it happens? <laughs> No, not so much. And, and it's interesting. So account takeover has been around for a long time. Uh, in the last, I would say, five years or so, uh, the excuse me, proliferation of it has kind of exploded. Uh, and that is due to the frequency of, of breaches that occur. Um, so SpyCloud, for example, one of our main missions is not just to understand the data that we're dealing with, uh, but it's to understand the whole ecosystem uh, around it. So in, in this case, um, you know, I guess the standard operating procedure is an actor obtains a breach of some sort, uh, will then crack the passwords of said breach to uh, essentially build combo lists. And then it's just a matter of loading that combo list with a series of proxies into, you know, crimeware to spray and pray, so to speak, uh, attacks across the internet. So due to the proliferation of the spray and pray concept, uh, we're starting to see ATO uh, I guess have a much bigger effect on uh, people's everyday life. So I'm sure our listeners out there have gotten these breach detection notifications before, right? Your, your uh, information has been compromised in some way. Uh, you get this notification. I mean, we, I, I, as far as I know, everybody that I know gets these, these notices, right? Because there's been so many breaches on, on, on a mass scale. And then it says that, you know, you should do certain things and we get you, you know, credit protection and, and, and if you want and you follow these steps. But it, it, it can be hard, I think, for the average person to really understand if they should be taking this letter seriously or not, um, what the impact on their life could or, or may be. And especially if this is the first time that they heard from this company about such a thing. So how do consumers tell if this type of alert is real and how serious they should take it? Yeah, excellent question. So, um, Again, I, I think with all the, the mainstream media reporting on breaches these days, the concept of notification services um, is starting to kind of skyrocket. Uh, and so what I mean by that is 
there are many companies out there that are breach notification services. I think there's a big difference between a notification service uh, and then a company that is attempting to understand that data uh, with kind of the byproduct also being a notification. Um, but for one, I think the general rule of thumb is you, you should always assume compromise. Um, you know, most people these days um, tend to use a password manager of some sort, but managing all those IDs and identities um, can be difficult. In other words, they don't necessarily update or change said passwords all the time. Um, but I think the first question you have to ask is, you know, it was, how can I verify this information? Um, and that's when uh, I guess you need to investigate the company itself because one of the hardest things to do is actually verify where this information came from. Um, so what a lot of these breach detection companies do is they will just scrape certain parts of the internet uh, looking for very specific things such as, you know, keywords, file names, that sort of thing, hashes. Um, and they don't actually verify the data. Um, so an example of verifying that data would be, hey, I was just alerted on this breach. Um, let me attempt to understand where this data come from. Has it come from previous combo lists? Um, you know, is 70% of the usernames and passwords, do they originate from another breach? That sort of thing. So I think uh, in general, you want to take those notifications seriously. You know, always assume compromise. Um, but you also want to validate the validity of the data and ensure there was a verification process of some sort. So you said before that, account takeover fraud is, isn't a new problem. Um, but there's been a, a proliferation of, of ATO for some sorts of uh, reasons. What, what are those reasons? Is the technology different? I mean, is there technology, you know, the, are the emerging technologies making it easier for criminals to conduct account takeover? Uh, you know, that, that's, that's a really good question. I think in general, yes. Um, there are technologies such as crimeware that are getting easier to use. Um, but simply put, put, it's more about the ecosystem. We're starting to see um, kind of new areas of crime. And what I mean by that, or an example would be, um, you know, the, the unsophisticated attacker. And, and I think it should be noted that um, the majority of ATO attacks are generally done from a uh, non-sophisticated attacker. You know, it's very easy to purchase uh, what you need to load into crimeware and again, kind of do that spray and, and prey attack. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, if you think about the kind of actor hierarchy, uh, we're dealing with that, that bottom level. Um, but yes, it's true that the crimeware tools are getting easier and easier to use. Um, but I think it's a combination of things as, as to why we're seeing a rise in this. One is crimeware is getting easier to get your hands on. Two, um, the response, the security response from many of these companies um, is unable to keep pace. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, and then lastly, um, these new ecosystems and economies that are spinning up from ATO. So for example, an actor that, um, you know, spray and praise a particular site uh, will document all the valid logins and they don't actually have to come up with a scam after that part, or um, they don't necessarily have to directly find someone to sell the, that data to. Uh, we're starting to see the proliferation of these middleman shops where, uh, again, in that same example, I could spray and pray, take my valid logins, go to a standard kind of e-commerce uh, middleman shop that's criminal owned uh, and sell that data there. 
So it's becoming easier to kind of commoditize the outputs uh, of these processes. All right, folks, it's time to transition into a commercial break. But hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by simply searching at TF7 Radio. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the Vice President of Security Research for SpyCloud, Eric Murphy. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio. The voice of cybersecurity. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem superconnector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure. Security-innovation.org or Google Signet S-I-N-E-T. We're not your typical security vendor. In fact, the script for this ad was written by an engineer, not a marketing guru. Because at Sock Prime, we're focused on features that matter to our users. Our threat detection marketplace has over 30,000 cross-platform SIM and EDR rules. Our downloadable Sigma, Yara, and Snort detections can be deployed with just a few clicks. And our map to the MITRE ATT&CK framework, enabling quicker and more strategic detection. With support from Sock Prime's veteran team and our community of contributors, we bridge the blue team skills gap and cover emerging threats with daily releases of new content. Nearly three quarters of the threat detection marketplace is free to download. Register for free at tdm.sockprime.com with promo code radio2019 to receive one free key to unlock premium content. That's tdm.socprime.com. 
promo code RADIO2019. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the Vice President of Security Research at SpyCloud, Eric Murphy. So, Eric, I think a lot of our listeners out there want to know exactly how hackers get your data. I mean, what technology are they using to get your data, and what are they doing with it? Excellent. Yeah, right. That is the primary commodity these days. Uh, we see this in almost every, every vertical, every industry. So, how do hackers get our data? Um, well. Usually it starts with a breach of some sort. Uh, and specifically what that means is a company who does not have the best security practices in the world, and in some cases even if they do, um, a database is compromised in some way that has um, you know, usernames and passwords, sometimes in plain text, sometimes not. Um, so step one, just like any kind of uh, campaign that any malicious person would go through, is obtain that data. And they do this either through buying it uh, through very specific criminal communities or uh, obtaining the data themselves through some kind of hack. Uh, it should be noted that the actors that actually obtain this data themselves are typically a little more sophisticated. Um, and again, most of the breaches that occur tend to happen on sites that you've probably never heard of. It isn't until you know, uh, a big name company is a breach that it would tend to catch your attention. Um, so it starts with breaches. Uh, once they obtain that breach, uh, they will go through a process and crack uh, those passwords, um, you know, depending on how they're encrypted or hashed. Uh, and then from that process, they, they create the, the first input to the process, which uh, is called a combo list. And to clarify, a combo list is just a list of usernames and passwords separated by a colon. Uh, once they have that combo list, um, it kind of starts the crimeware process where they would get access to one of the common tools, and there are many, just to name a few, uh, account checker type tools as they're called, uh, Sentry MBA, Sniper, Apex. Um, there's literally an unlimited supply of these kinds of tools. Um, they will load all their inputs in, so that said combo list. Um, I, there's additional assets or inputs, such as you know proxy lists, to ensure traffic is uh, coming from different sources, that sort of thing. And then the key part that um, I have not mentioned yet is what's called an account checker config. 
this essentially tells the software, um, you know, what domain or subdomain to attack, uh, so on and so forth, how to bypass security controls. So once they load all their inputs in uh, is when they start kind of that attack process. But tying this back to how do they get your data, um, it's the same way that hackers have been getting data for <laughs> uh, many, many years, which is usually relying upon others or doing the dirty work themselves. So, you know, this is pretty interesting. I mean, how hard is it for, for, the, for the hackers to actually decrypt the passwords when they're encrypted? Fantastic question. Um, it depends on the sophistication of the dumped database or the security practices uh, of the particular company. Um, more often than not, um, you can crack passwords in a database, assuming the hashing algorithm um, is something fairly trivial like MD5, for example. Um, however, it is still possible to crack some of the more sophisticated uh, algorithms. Um, it just takes more time. So um, it, it really depends on, on what uh, company has been breached um, and how much time the attacker has. So it seems to me like the, the attackers are just automating their entire operation here on mass scale. And that's why you have a, even a few, if there's a few people working this can really manage the, the intrusion into thousands of accounts. Yes, exactly. Um, but if we go back to kind of the hacker hierarchy and remember the types of criminals that are typically um, carrying out these attacks, um, the sophistication is typically very low. So if you think about a pyramid, and I guess uh, at the very top you would have your nation states uh, and kind of lone individuals that are very sophisticated, uh, followed by that you would have kind of your criminal organizations uh, or, or mainstream criminal organizations, I, I should say. Um, these are, you know, things like cartels and so on and so forth. Uh, underneath that, you have kind of a layer of um, what I would call your traditional hacker types, people that uh, have a higher level of sophistication, um, that kind of dabble in everything. And then at the bottom of the pyramid is kind of um, the, the low-hanging fruit, the people that are not sophisticated, that just kind of run these spray-and-pray attacks, that sort of thing. But more often than not, um, the bottom of the period is, or pyramid is working for some other member in a different section of that pyramid. So it really depends what the mission is. What, uh, what level of hierarchy is making the most money here? Is it, uh, is, is it the guy that's actually doing the hack himself? Or is it some senior level person that's actually controlling the, the, the operation? Or are they one and the same? Yeah, so it, it depends on kind of where the actor falls. So more often than not, that the, the medium level, uh, the people that are operating, say, the middleman shops that I mentioned before, um, or that uh, are collecting the most amount of data, typically make the most amount of money. Uh, from a nation-state perspective, uh, money is usually not the, the primary motivator. Um, you know, they, there's a different sort of agenda there. They don't typically have to worry about anything from a monetary aspect. Um, the bottom of the pyramid is kind of the ones that are making the ends meet. But to answer your question, it's usually the middle of the pyramid, the people that um, kind of obtain the most amount of data or are sophisticated enough to do something else with it. So what do these guys do with your information after the ATO attack? 
Great question. So it depends on the, the company. So if we go back to, uh, I guess, that Domino's example, and I like to use this one because it's, it's kind of comical. Um, so uh, actor sprays and prays um, a particular Domino's endpoint, again, using that account checker config that enables them to bypass certain security mechanisms. Um, and once they log into the account, they're going to uh, extract metadata from it. Right, so these are things like the last four of the credit card, how long the account has been open, order history, um, things like loyalty points that are very specific to that company. Uh, but in the case of, I guess, Domino's or these, these pizza plugs, as they're called, um, certain scams will be developed around them. So as an actor who, say, has cracked a 1,000 accounts, Domino's accounts, the first thing I'm going to do is sort my inventory by you know, when the credit card expires. Then I have an option. I can either sell that data uh, to a middleman or I can create a scam, uh, which is essentially what I was mentioning earlier, where, um, and you can find these all over Twitter, really, where uh, they'll say, hey, you PayPal me $5 and I'll send you $25 worth of pizza. So it's the quintessential pizza plug that is very appealing to, say, college kids and things of that nature. Um, so it, it really depends on what... Uh, company or site has been breached. Let's talk about the economy of a little bit, right? So <clears throat> how much do, does this stuff cost on the criminal on the ground? What are these credentials and what is, how much is the data going for? Yeah, so if we go back to kind of the, what are the inputs and outputs? If we're talking about the inputs, so again, these are things like uh, raw breaches or credentials, combo lists, proxy lists, uh, account checker configs. Um, it typically ranges, um, and it, it depends on the site in, uh, that is being attacked. So, for example, uh, an account checker config for, say, Amazon is going to cost more, uh, which, by the way, it's still cheap. We're talking like $50 to $100, depending, uh, which is usually paid in some kind of cryptocurrency. Um, or the breaches themselves, which are probably the, the highest value commodity, uh, can range from the you know, uh, tens of hundreds of dollars to thousands. Um, but each piece or each input um, kind of has a, a specific dollar value. And ironically enough, uh, one of our research projects, projects right now is to understand the pricing around these economies. Um, but to answer your question, um, you can get started very easily. You know, a crimeware software might cost you $20. A config to attack, say, Netflix might be another $20. Um, but end of day, under $100, you could get started pretty easily. And where do people go to buy this, this data? I mean, is this available to the public? Can anybody just go in and start buying uh, account credentials for uh, various different accounts? Ironically enough, uh, yes. However, um, the people that run these criminal communities um, are often, you know, not dumb. Uh, they will be watching logs to understand, hey, are you a new member? Are you connecting from the same place every time? Are you connecting from the dark web? You know, that sort of thing. So all uh, that metadata about your visit or your interactions uh, to these communities is typically logged and, and understood. Um, so on one hand, yes, um, you know, you could create a persona and start to interact with these communities as long as you have a basic understanding of what the operating procedure is um, kind of in this hackery culture world. So what level of sophistication is required for these ATO attacks? Excellent question. So 
Um, most of the ATO attack set is, are, is seen across the internet um, is very low. Um, you know, these are typically people that do not have a strong prog programming skill set. Um, they're leveraging existing tools, as I mentioned uh, earlier, like Century MBA or Sniper or Apex or something like that. So they don't have an understanding of the, you know, how does this actually work or, um, you know, they don't have the ability to extend the application. Um, but because we're dealing with the, the spray and pray nature, um, you know, that makes a lot of noise. That's not something uh, a sophisticated actor would do. So there's a difference between, say, um, targeting a, a high-value target like a presidential candidate or something like that and getting access to their accounts versus just spraying the internet and seeing what sticks and then selling the output of that. All right, Eric, we got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, the Vice President of Security Research for SpyCloud, Eric Murphy. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure security-innovation.org or Google Sinet S-I-N-E-T Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. 
Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the Vice President of Security Research at SpyCloud, Eric Murphy. So, Eric, how can personal information that's been accessed by criminals help them gain entry into your employer systems? Ah, fantastic question. So, I suppose now we're talking about kind of enterprise. Um, Right. Yeah, so in general, enterprise credentials, uh, and again, to clarify, um, this would, an example would be, you know, an at Netflix email address or at SpyCloud or something like that, um, can be significant uh, and damaging to the business. So I guess if you assume that a business has a proper security organization uh, in conjunction with maybe evaluating risk and so on and so forth, um, Depending on the company's technical expertise or acumen, it could be very devastating. So uh, it's very possible, um, or actually likely, we've seen this many times before, where uh, we will see a series of enterprise credentials, you know, floating around the web, and the wild thing about it is that many of them are valid. In other words, uh, engineers, developers, people that are working in the enterprise typically have the same kind of password hygiene Um, that your standard user might. In other words, um, they're not changing passwords very often. So the risk is significantly higher um, depending on how that data was obtained. And specifically what I mean is, hey, if if that enterprise credential pair uh, was sourced uh, through a botnet of some sort, um, well, that indicates some kind of malware infection, so that's higher on the risk scale uh, versus a breach of another service. Um, but we all kind of know, you know, hey, if I'm able to log into, again, using Netflix as an example, uh, Netflix back end services as a Netflix employer engineer, uh, that could be absolutely devastating. Um, does that answer your question? It does. And whose problem is ATO fraud to solve in the enterprise? Uh, another good one. So there's a lot of opinions on this. Right. Um, If you were to ask my opinion, I would say this is everybody's problem, uh, customers included. Um, You know, in in general, many of the tech companies, uh, again, my opinion, um, tend to believe that the ATO problem is a customer issue. You know, that is their security responsibility to deal with. Um, Unfortunately, that's not entirely true. Uh, Most of the time, enterprises don't have the mechanisms in place to be able to even deal with this sort of problem. Um, But I do agree in the sense that it's a shared responsibility. You know, there there is some level of expectation that a user should have decent password hygiene and they should manage their identities accordingly. Um, But uh, that doesn't mean they don't get any assistance from whatever enterprise or company they're logging into or working with. So if you were to ask me, it's kind of everybody's problem. Um, And we need better tooling and better understanding and in some cases kind of um, an overhaul of this concept of identity uh, to be able to solve the problem. So my guess is that when you're talking to potential customers and especially large enterprises, big companies, they're telling you that they're already covered when it comes to ATO fraud. When it comes Mm -hmm. to ATO, they got it covered. They don't need any help. What's the reality with that? So again, I can, I can speak from experience here. Um, this is usually not the case. Uh, and the reason is, um, it is not the security orga- organization that is um, typically managing, implementing, adjusting, say, an authentication flow. Um, so if we think about this, uh, and again, we're going to use a tech company as a standard example that has a web app in which you log into. 
um, it's often um, multiple parties are involved, right? So this, uh, the CISO of the org will push um, or articulate kind of uh, requirements to say the engineering side of the house to, hey, say, this is the kind of information we need to collect from an authentication flow. Uh, nine times out of ten, uh, that basic fingerprinting process is either not implemented or it's done from kind of a business logic sense, helping the business to uh, make decisions based on, you know, um, attributes of a particular login, um, usually not security focused. Um, so I think at the end of the day, um, when enterprises say they're covered on the ATO front, um, unless they have a proactive security model, um, I don't necessarily believe that to be true. So what about two-factor authentication? Is that enough security coverage when people have two-factor enabled? So even then, uh, if you are, um, you know, outside of financial institutions like your bank or a cryptocurrency exchange or something like that, um, there, there really is no way, um, or I guess a better way to put it is, multi-factor is again put on the user to enable. Uh, very rarely is it required, um, you know, especially for, for technology companies. Again, going to back to that Netflix example. Um, it does help the problem. It doesn't necessarily solve the problem because if an attacker wants to get into your account, uh, they typically will. Uh, maybe they use a SIM swapping attack uh, to hijack your phone so they can intercept those SMS messages. Um, ironically enough, SMS and two-factor is still the, the primary, primarily used method of multi-factor authentication as opposed to, say, um, using the Duo app on your phone or a Google Authenticator or something like that. Um, so the risk is there, but again, security at the end of the day is all about adding layers. Uh, and unfortunately, in the context of ATO, um, right now, again, without overhauling uh, this concept of identity, uh, multi-factor is typically the best that you get. Um, so while multi-factor does aid in helping to discourage attackers, uh, it has not affected, say, the value uh, of an account that does have 2FA enabled. Um, so end of day, it is helpful. It is highly recommended and encouraged, but it doesn't necessarily stop uh, a login. So let's, let's dig a little bit deeper into this and how we actually solve this problem, especially in the enterprise, right? So what does a good investment look like to combat ATO fraud in the enterprise? Yeah, so I think uh, we'll, we'll tackle this kind of in, in two different ways. The first one is, is what can we do today to solve this problem as an engineering org, a security organization? Uh, and I think the first step is just having visibility into what this login flow looks like. Um, additionally, it's having access or kind of that proactive access into data sets that enable you to determine if a, a login is suspicious or um, kind of is a representative of, of ATO, suspicious ATO activity. Um, so I think we're going to start to see more and more products coming out that could say inspect HTTP requests to determine if a login is malicious or suspicious in some way. Very similar or akin to kind of the, the fraud tech that is out there, but geared more for, for ATO. So that is what organizations can do today is get a better handle on uh, and fingerprinting what those flows look like and then leveraging data um, to determine if a uh, credential is compromised in some way. Uh, and again, that's a very basic level. Um, alternatively, the second prong to that 
um, is kind of like the concept of the decentralized identity. Um, and I'll only spend a minute talking about this because it's a very complex topic. Um, but honestly, with the proliferation of blockchain tech, we have the ability now to kind of um, build out these decentralized identities. And the best way I can describe it, uh, or I guess how it's described uh, now, is kind of the self-sovereign identity. So today, when I log into Netflix, that's a one-way transaction, right? I, uh, my primary identity is my email address and my password. When I go to log into Netflix, they retain all that data in which they could do something with, sell it to others, um, uh, you know, or essentially try to understand patterns around uh, my identity. But identity should really be a two-way process. In other words, uh, I should be able to uh, pick and choose kind of what I'm sharing in a very decentralized way that doesn't give, say, Netflix the ability to then share that data. So you can kind of think of it like um, you manage your digital identities in this two-way process. You pick and choose what you want to share. Um, and so it's sort of like building a series of, of personas. But that's the concept of decentralized identity. Uh, again, uh, won't spend a lot of time talking about that. But those are kind of the, the two two ways to attack the problem. So what's the difference really between a reactive organization versus a proactive intelligence organization? You know, we've mentioned this a couple times in, in the segment already, and I just want to sort of dig a little bit deeper into this and get some clarity around the difference between reactive and proactive. Yeah, sure. So I think uh, by, by default, proactive organizations tend to follow more data science practices and patterns. Uh, they might have an ingest pipeline in which they can digest many sources of data uh, to either classify or, or make sense of. Um, oftentimes, this might include, you know, some uh, machine learning practices and things of that nature. Um, reactive uh, really is only having visibility into your perimeter and into your organization. Um, again, touching on proactive is, is more your organization and everything outside of it. You want to understand those threats to your business, to your vertical, uh, and you want to understand how criminals operate. So I would say those are the fundamental differences. Is this ever going to go away? I mean, is this ever going to be solved as a new technology to come out where we don't have to worry about ATO fraud anymore? So as of right now, no. The problem will never go away. It's, it's been here for ages. Uh, we're just starting to see more and more of it due to the media and breaches and that sort of thing. Um, can it be solved? Can it go away? Yes. And again, it comes back to the concept of identity and how we operate today. If we continue the standard operating processes, um, then no, it won't go away. If we end up in kind of a decentralized state, um, leveraging kind of the self-sovereign identity concepts, then yes, that, that could solve the problem. Um, but I don't see the problem going away for quite a while. There is always going to be communities uh, and kind of the concept of trading these commodities uh, within the, the actor world. So um, no, I don't see it going, in, going away anytime soon. You think companies understand the full impact of the ATO on their ecosystems? Definitely not. Um, you know, again, it comes back to understanding these communities and how they operate. Uh, even if you look at a lot of the mainstream media articles that are coming out uh, of your favorite kind of tech publications, um, they tend to be very reactive. It's, hey, this thing happens, such as a breach. Um, this is bad. We should do something about it. Or they might highlight, hey, this is a, a piece of crimeware 
um, you know, that actors are using. Or look at this malware. We've done analysis on it, and this is what it does. So it's this, this idea of a thing happens, and then we analyze or, or react to it. Uh, versus, again, understanding the communities and the ins and outs. So I like to classify in the context of what are the inputs and outputs of the criminal processes. And if you can understand both of those, then you get much better insight into how criminals are, are acting and kind of what their trends are. And that, that's a very important point I want to make. It's oftentimes that, that this is left out of the security processes in determining, you know, uh, what's new or what's hot at any given time, and then mapping or managing those trends over a period of time. Eric, I like to think about everything in terms of risk when I talk about cybersecurity. So how am I going to look at ATO uh, fraud or, or just account takeover incidents in general uh, in terms of a risk-adjusted cybersecurity strategy? How, how, do we, how do we actually articulate that? How does that come across the, like, the board? Yeah, no, so uh, I think in general, risk organizations, um, they tend to kind of think in, in two ways. Is this a perceived risk or an actual risk? Right. Right. And ATO for a long time has kind of just fit into the perceived risk category. Um, and I think the reason for that is, is, you know, we see the output of an ATO attack in the media almost every day. That doesn't necessarily affect uh, that particular individual or that company. Uh, so until it kind of happens to them, it's always a perceived risk. But the reality is, is this is going on constantly all the time. Um, the, the, again, this concept of the spray and pray attack. Um, so it's a very high risk item, um, especially in the context of enterprise credentials. Um, so suddenly, if you know, an actor has the CFO's username and password and can log into a bank account or something serious, uh, then that is something that requires immediate action or is an actual risk uh, versus the perceived. So um, it, it often um, comes down to how an organization um, perceives risk and what frameworks they're using and so on and so forth. But when it comes to ATO, it is an actual risk. Um, just because it's not happening to you at any given time does not mean you or your employees are not within that data set. Uh, so one thing criminals love to do is use the concept of the fuzzy matching. So they might take your password uh, and come up with, you know, 100 variations of it and try it in all the sites that you like to visit. Uh, that is a surprisingly high success rate. Um, so again, I guess to answer your question or, or wrap up, ATO is actually a, an actual risk. It tends to be high risk depending on the enterprise credentials that are affected, um, but it should not be left out of the risk process. Eric, man, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I love the partnership that TF7 has with SpyCloud. I really believe in what you guys are doing over there. If I can ever do anything for you, please let me know, and please be sure to come back on the show often. Absolutely. I had a pleasure. Thank you very much. All right, folks, it's time to bounce up out of here once again. Before we go to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, 
please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.